All right, you're in Acts chapter 11, and uh, we're going to finish this chapter today. Acts chapter 11 really serves as a foundational element in the early church, uh, foundational elements in the early church. The first half we talked about last week was about the, the gospel coming to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius, and Peter giving a defense of that to those Jewish believers. And then now in this back half, we see the beginning of the church in Antioch. And this church was established by Gentiles, Hellenist, Greek-speaking Jews. Primarily, the church was comprised of Gentile believers. There would have been Jewish believers there, but, but pr- primarily, this church was made of Gentile believers. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Antioch before we read verses 11 through 19. Antioch was the third largest city at the time. Only Rome and Alexandria were, were larger than them. They, they estimated the population was between 500,000 to 800,000 people. It was the third, uh, it was a melting pot of Greek, Roman, Arab, and Persian cultures, was religiously pluralistic, so meaning that they had idol worship. There, there, there was no necessarily one religion that they practiced. It was carefully laid out. Gridded, it had a grid pattern of streets. You guys ever been to cities where you're like, who designed this, right? Theirs was perfectly laid out. They were positioned perfect, perfectly in a uh, large, fertile plain. They were really a beautiful city. But Antioch was a key mission base for the Gentile outreach. It was a natural location because of the melting pot of people that existed there. And they became the mother church of the Gentiles. They became the birthplace of foreign missions, and they truly were an international church. Antioch was a united church because they didn't just exist in their own little island. They were connected to the church in Jerusalem, which we'll see this morning. And oftentimes we ask ourselves, what made the church in Antioch so powerful? Like, what what made it so good? How did it grow the way that it did. I think there's three key things that we learn from them at, at the very beginning of their establishment. These practices that they did that we need to consider ourselves this morning as a church. And so let's read Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and speaking the word to no one except Jews. Let me say this Luke connects. Verse 19, back to Acts chapter eight. Right after Stephen has been, uh, he's been martyred, he connects and he's, he's reminding us, this is how the gospel got to what we're talking about today, is that through the, Stephen's death, the church was scattered, and then we pick up with where, where some of them went. Verse 20 says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists and also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. 
And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So that the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The first practice that we see the early church doing here in the church of Antioch is as a growing church engages in evangelism. And as I told you that as the church was scattered in Acts chapter 8 because of Stephen's death, they went to these, these places uh, to share the gospel. And as these believers showed up in these places, they shared the gospel wherever they went. They went about preaching the word. And Luke gives us a wide angle of just how far those believers left Jerusalem and went. And he names the places. They went as far as Phoenicia. And Phoenicia would have been about some 70 miles along the coast of the middle of Syria from Mount Carmel. So if you found Mount Carmel and you went up about 70 miles into the middle of Syria, that's, that's kind of where this region would have been. We know that some went to Cyprus, which was the easternmost island of the Mediterranean, and then Antioch, which was the furthest north. And these unknown believers, unidentified believers, scattered, went about preaching the gospel, and found themselves in Antioch. Tim Keller would refer to these believers as mavericks. John Stott said that they were daring spirits. And these two groups went further north, and the text tells us that some of them were speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now, remember, this is emphasizing Luke's intention that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so he highlights that even some of these that were scattered as they preached the gospel, they were only sharing the gospel with those of the Jewish faith. And then here's where Tim Keller and John Stott refer to these people, because but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. These were the mavericks and the daring spirits because they, they did something that wasn't normal. They began to speak to those of the Gentile community. And the gospel quickly spread among them and in the city and believers began speaking to the Greeks. Now, this is what we know about these believers. They were unidentified. Not a single one of them was called by name. And when they showed up into these places in the further north, when they got to Antioch, they were not interested in protecting their own way of life. They cared more about sharing the gospel with people who might actually bring challenges from their backgrounds when they get saved and come into the church. And that's kind of what we talked about last week with our own prejudice and why sometimes we judge whether or not someone needs to be clean before they come into the family of God, right? This is what's happening here. These men were not concerned with their own way of life and protecting their own way of life. They were more passionate about sharing the gospel and embracing the challenges that might come in of these people bringing their pluralistic religious practices into the church. Like they know that they know the challenges that, that they might bring. They literally teach you and I how to be salt and light. Because to be salt and light means we have to be involved with people. And listen, they went into dark places and shined very brightly. They were involved with these people. Now when they were involved with these people, they remained faithful to the Lord Jesus. They remained 
They walked in wisdom, they were sober, they were gracious, and they were godly in the process. See, sometimes we will use the excuse that when we want to engage people with the gospel, we want to engage in evangelism with people, well, I've gotta go where they go and hang out where they hang out and do what they do. And I have no problem being involved with lost people. But so often, believers with good intentions of being involved with lost people find themselves becoming immersed in what lost people are doing. We still have to have godly wisdom and we have to keep godly behavior in front of us as we become in, involved with them. Listen, we ha- the only way we're gonna be salt and light is we have to be involved with them, but we also have to keep a line drawn and that's what these guys have taught us. And yet while we are involved with lost people, we have to be faithful. Listen, we have no idea who these, who these men and women are that, that, that they spread and share the gospel. What we do know is this, they were ordinary people who went forward and shared the gospel as they went. The beauty of Antioch was that it was evangelized by average members of Christ's body who were simply willing to share their faith. No matter where they landed, they started a fire. If you've wondered, church, can ordinary Christians really make a difference? We kind of live in this world with social media today where everybody needs to be a celebrity Christian. Listen, popularity is not equal to significance. Significant difference that people make are when ordinary believers do what God's called them to do, and that's share the gospel wherever he's planted them. You start a fire. And you draw people, you start a fire and light up the darkness, and people are drawn to the Lord Jesus. And listen, if you've ever wondered if ordinary Christians make a difference, this passage is your answer. They had no plans. They had no programs. They had no budgets. You know what they had? A passion for the Lord Jesus and to make Jesus' name known among people. Isn't it amazing that this is a great model for us because the church simply started and grew because nobody's witnessed to their neighbors. The church grew because ordinary believers with no special talents and abilities just shared the gospel with their neighbors. And not only did they share the gospel with their neighbors, the text tells us that they, that they emphasized the lordship of Jesus. And if you read in verse 21, it says, or at the end of verse 20, it says, preaching the Lord Jesus, and, at, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The word Lord is used three times in two verses here. These Greeks heard the good news of the Lord Jesus, The lordship of Jesus had been established and realized among the Gentiles who believed in here. And when this and this was a way to connect with their culture, they understood what the word Lord meant. And so as these believers were sharing the gospel with them and and emphasizing the lordship of Jesus, it was falling upon the hearts of Gentiles who understood what the word Lord meant. And they believed, They, they repented of their sin and they trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and a large number of them come to faith. It's the first record of a large number of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. 
These believers' message was both understandable and connected with their audience because they would know what the word Lord meant in their context. And we're reminded this morning that to be good evangelists, which we're all to be evangelists, is we not only have to know the gospel, but we need to know the people we're sharing with it in order to make a bridge from the gospel to their life. And there's another piece that we learned from this group, and it's about how, as relating to evangelism and engaging in evangelism, is we know that prayer and evangelism are key. Listen, if you were to read around Acts chapter 11, particularly in the, in the chapters that are gonna come, you know this, that these people were people who prayed. They were praying people. And praying, these were praying people who were desperate for the Lord Jesus to do a great work among those whom they were working. It was evident that the hand of the Lord was at work. Let me ask you a question this, mor- this morning. How many times this week did you pray for a lost person in your life? How many times this week did you get on your knees in desperation and ask God to save the soul of someone you know? Because a praying people, when you're praying for, the, for lost people to be saved, God hears those prayers, he will answer them, and oftentimes he will use you to engage in evangelism, to share the gospel with those people. And that's what was happening here. And for us as a church, we've got to be reminded often that growing churches are praying churches engaged in evangelism, reaching people with the gospel, seeing new converts. God's plan for the advancement of the gospel through evangelism is far more effective and way more simple. It's just a simple process he's given us. You share the gospel with your neighbor, they hear the gospel, repent of their sin, and trust in Jesus. What a great way to grow the church. We don't have to overcomplicate it. We don't have to become a seeker-sensitive church that creates all of these programs and to try to reach people with the gospel. Listen, we will grow as a church if we as individuals do what God has called us to do with the passion inside of us is to simply engage people with the gospel and pray that God will save them. That's it. As C.T. Studs said, some like to dwell within the sound of the church and the chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. These early believers had an awesome awesome task. Proclaim the good news of Jesus. And you know what's awesome for you and I? We get to do the same thing today. So let me ask a question of you this morning. Have you helped someone believe in Christ Jesus? The second practice the church does is that a growing church invests in discipleship. Listen, discipleship involves a couple of things. It involves accountability, encouragement, and teaching and instruction. And we see this begin to happen because what happened as soon as these large numbers of Gentiles started coming to faith in Antioch, it says that the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had this idea that they were always concerned with what was happening with the Christian faith wherever it went. And so as they heard of this news, they wanted to kind of maybe bring some accountability. And so what happened? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Listen, their interest was a form of accountability as well as encouragement and instruction. And in this specific incident, The church in Jerusalem did not send one of its apostles. Now, you remember when the gospel made its way to the Samaritans, they sent some of the apostles to see what was happening because they were, you know, 
a little bit concerned that the gospel was going to those in Samaria. And so now they don't send an apostle, they send Barnabas, which Barnabas was a wise choice because what does the text tell us about Barnabas? We know that he was from Cyprus. Maybe he even knew some of the people there sharing the gospel. He, he himself was a Hellenistic Jew. He spoke fluent Greek, like he would have had a natural relationship with the people there. So it was a wise choice on their behalf. He was known as the son of encouragement. His disposition would be encouraging. He had been proven himself to be an encourager and a reconciler. He was a good man, highly respected, as the text tells us. He had a good reputation among outsiders. This is the only time that Luke refers to someone as good in Acts. He was a bridge builder, participated in the church in Jerusalem by selling his property and giving to the church. And he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, the same words used to describe Stephen as he died his martyr death. Kent Hughes highlighted that Barnabas' faith produced spiritual desire, expectation, and dependence upon God. Let me ask, he asked the question, can you think of someone like this in your life? Can you think of someone in your life that their faith produces spiritual desire, expectation, and dependence upon God? Or maybe the better question to ask is, are you this kind of person? Does your faith produce spiritual desire, expectation, and dependence upon God? Because this is who they sent. So not only is there accountability involved because now the church in Jerusalem has sent to the church in Antioch Barnabas to see what's happening, but then now encouragement plays a factor in discipleship. And listen, a church that is growing will be invested in discipleship through accountability and encouragement, and we learn what Barnabas did. So when he got there, he saw the grace of God, and he rejoiced. And what does the text tell us? Then he exhorted them to all to them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He could have easily got there, saw this movement among the Gentile people, and began to question the authenticity of it. I mean, we're talking about large numbers of people coming to faith. No. When he showed up, he doesn't judge, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't object or doubt the work. Rather, he witnesses the grace of God at work. One commentator said, so often we're so preoccupied with ourselves that we often miss the grace of God at work around us. Church family, Barnabas teaches us that we need to see the grace of God at work in those around us. And when we see the grace of God at work, we should do what he did. We should be glad, or in some of your translations, we should rejoice. We should rejoice at what God is doing. We need to be people who are quick to rejoice when we see God at work. And not only that, we need to encourage them. We need to encourage them in the faith and to remain faithful in the Lord. One commentator said, many of us are so busy thinking about Christianity that we've lost our hold on Christ. In essence, saying this, Barnabas was exhorting the family of God here to hold on to Jesus. And when you disciple other believers, encouragement is key. And the quality of encouragement is looking for the best in others. So often when we think about discipleship, we think about what's my job to show you all the areas of your life. You're not like Jesus. Most people already know that. 
So what we want to do as disciple makers, when we're invested in making disciples, is we want to help them see the best in them of what Jesus wants for their life. And we want them to hold on to Jesus. And we want them to, their life to be centered upon Jesus. So we encourage them in the faith. Listen, people are in need of encouragement. The church needs more people like Barnabas. We don't need complainers. We don't need judges. We don't need evaluators. We need encouragers within the body of Christ to spur each other on. As William Barclay said, we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word of encouragement. And as the church grew, the goodness and fullness of the Holy Spirit and the faith they saw in Barnabas began to be reproduced in the members of this young church. And so when, you th- when people think about you, do they say these words, man, that's somebody I want to speak into my life, or do they look at you and say, no, that's the cold water committee, I don't want anything to do with them. And then discipleship involves teaching. We know this, that as it tells us that great many and a great many were added to the Lord even after Barnabas got there. But listen, Barnabas knew his limitations, so he knew he needed help. So where did he go? He went to Tarsus to, to look for Saul. And notice the text tells us when he, when he found him, meaning this, Saul wasn't just hanging out in Tarsus. Now, we haven't seen Saul or Paul. We haven't seen him in several years. And so when Barnabas knows he's in Tarsus when he shows up. Paul's not just sitting around. He's out doing mission work. And in fact, we believe that his theology had deepened, his faith had matured. And when Barnabas finds him, he invites him back to teach because discipleship involves teaching. And Paul would come alongside Barnabas to become heavily occupied with teaching the Gentile believers for a year. Teaching others is key in discipleship. We cannot see people come to faith in Jesus and then leave them by themselves. We have to come alongside them and teach them how to know and follow Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas, they were not just fine seeing conversions. They wanted to see new converts become disciples. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. And they provided godly, mature leadership and teaching, regularly gathering together and investing in them because they knew that discipleship wasn't something that happened overnight, that the sanctification process takes time. And if we are gonna be disciple makers, then we have to invest in discipleship, which means we have to invest in the life of people. We have to give and sacrifice some of our own time to help people know and follow Jesus. Listen, if spiritual birth is the beginning, then spiritual growth is what follows. And every believer's faith needs to grow and mature through consistent Bible study, instruction, accountability, and encouragement. So who have you helped grow in their spiritual life? Or who are you helping right now grow in their spiritual life? And notice this, that when all this starts to take place, evangelism happens, people coming to faith in Jesus, discipleship's taking place, people maturing in their faith, You'll notice at the very end of verse 26 says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. As the movement of the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus uh, was happening, outsiders began to take notice and they called them Christians, literally labeling them in the name of Christ. It's the first time in the New Testament that Christians are referred to in this way. In fact, all uses of the word Christian in the New Testament 
or a word given by outsiders to describe what's happening in the life of believers. Christians were beginning to have an identity of its own. Kent Hughes described it this way. If a spiritual dynamic operated among us, causing people to reach for a new word to describe of us, what would that word be? What words would they use now? When God's people live for Christ in such depth and power that those around them have to strive for a new term to describe what they see, that is awesome. That's what he said. When God's people live for Christ in such depth and power that those around them have to strive for a new term to describe what they see, that is awesome. And church, I'm afraid today that the church is known for a lot of other things other than Jesus. Jesus is an add-on to what we want the church to be. Our Following of Jesus should burn so deeply in our life that people, all they can describe us is as Christians, little Christ, those who bear the name of Jesus. That's all they should say about you and I's life. That's all they should say about our church. And when we're engaged in evangelism and invested in discipleship, you communicate, I am all about Jesus. It takes us to the third and final practice, which is a growing church participates in ministry in these last three verses here. Luke shows the ministry of the church. Jerusalem had helped Antioch, and now Antioch was going to help Jerusalem. Luke mentions the arrival of the prophets. They tell of a coming famine. It's an interesting note that God often used famine to bring people together and to save them. So he makes note of this famine coming. Luke emphasizes when it happened. It actually took place in the days of Claudius. And notice what the church does here. They respond with generosity. The church in Jerusalem was already seen as a generous church, and now Luke connects these two churches together that while different, yet filled with the same spirit, are marked by generosity. The church in Antioch did not view their church as isolated from what's happening in Jerusalem. Rather, they viewed their community as one and were quick to provide for other believers. As Patrick Schreiner says, what a witness this would be if modern churches acted accordingly even with churches different than them. In essence, their ministry was selfish. Notice in the text that they did not ask, how much is this gonna cost? When they heard the news, verse 29 says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judah. There was not a question of how much is this gonna cost, or I'm not really invested in that. I don't even know those people, so I'm not given to that. They gave as much as they could, despite the differences, ministering to one another, and this shows that the power that the gospel had done in their life, the transformation it had brought. And church family, let me say this. Reluctant giving is focused too much on the world and displays a lack of concern for others. Remember, when you remember how much God has done for you and you begin to reflect upon that, it becomes easier to give generously. And as Al Mohler said, the generosity of this church serves as an example for you and I today. We are called to exercise the same generosity to relieve the suffering of our brothers and sisters, even those we have never met. And like the church in Antioch, we are called not just to respond to, but also anticipate the needs of others and then to share generously with what the Lord has given us. This church teaches us you don't have to be wealthy or rich to be generous. 
We simply just need to give generously, no matter how small or large that may be, and our generosity needs to be sacrificial. And listen, we will give generously when we value the kingdom of God over our own lives. And their ministry was a church-wide effort. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't 20% giving 80% of it. Everyone was engaged. The church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch both had worked to meet the needs of each other. So I'll conclude with this question. What are you doing personally to contribute to the church-wide effort of providing for ministry and missions? Alexander the Great found out that one of his soldiers was named Alexander. The Alexander in the army was known for his coward behavior, and so Alexander the Great, who conquered the world at age 23, called in this Alexander, who was a member of his army, and said, is your name Alexander, and are you named for me? To which that Alexander responded, yes, sir. My name is Alexander, and I was named for you. And Alexander the Great said, then you either be brave or change your name. The good news for you and me is that Jesus doesn't call us to his his presence and say such a strong statement, but he does call us through his word to live as faithful followers of him who share the gospel, disciple others, and participate in ministry. Will you join him in the work? Let's pray together.